Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Each week, we bring you the most interesting conversations from around the media industry. And today, we'll be talking about why The Overtake, an independent news website for millennials based in the north of England, shut down. Since 2016, the website has produced in-depth articles for its young readers on topics like climate change and equality. But last week, in an article to its readers, The Overtake said thank you and goodbye as it announced it was calling it a day and closing down. But maybe not for the reasons you might be thinking. Joining me today is the founder of The Overtake, Robin Vinter, and she tells me more about why this announcement was a long time coming. The first line in that post read, it's very hard to end something which isn't failing. The Overtake was otherwise in growth in terms of revenue and page views. So where's the issue? The problem was that it wasn't enough. The growth was too slow to overcome some of the key issues. Robin talks to us about the business decisions which led to it becoming unsustainable and her needing to do freelance work plus a part-time role at the Yorkshire Post to make her own ends meet. And if this is starting to sound a little bit doom and gloom, don't worry. There's some optimism in store for those looking to enter the independent media space. All of that's to come, but first, this. As well as great editorial content, journalism.co.uk provides a jobs board with the latest opportunities from around the media industry. Our job of the week is a head of social media role at Newsweek. For this position and all the rest on our jobs board, head over to www.journalism.co.uk forward slash jobs. Robin, welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast. What's the working situation like for you at the moment? It is, it's a real mix actually. Um, I'm, so I have, I have two laptops. I have my Yorkshire Post laptop, which I work from when I'm on the days that I'm at the Yorkshire Post. And then I have my freelance laptop and I just have to kind of switch everything over in the days in between. Um, so I'm at, I'm at a, in my spare bedroom, which is a tip. And I'm at a secondhand desk that someone donated to us for the overtake. And it's, yeah, and it's covered in piles of magazines and newspapers and all sorts of absolute junk. It really does need a a tidy, actually. (laughs) Working from many screens then, yeah? Yes, exactly. Sounds very busy. Um, Robin, we're here, of course, to talk about the overtake and the announcement that it made last week surrounding its closure. For our audience, maybe listening to this episode and they don't know much about the overtake, can you take us back to 2016 when you launched and talk to us about you know, why you launched and what your editorial mission really was from that point onwards? Yeah, so I, I'm from um, Leeds originally and grew up in Leeds and moved to London to work in journalism. Um, and one thing I noticed, um, this was obviously things have changed now, but back in kind of 2015, 2016, when the idea for the overtake was kind of forming in my head, um, there was a lot of talk about um, the future of journalism um, and what young people wanted. And, you know, a lot of the talk was about young people want kind of um, tweets and they want, you know, they want everything short. And, you know, these are the subjects that they're interested in and they're not interested in these other subjects. And I felt kind of fundamentally that, you know, as a young person um, who who wanted to read longer articles, I kind of felt that kind of the reason why long reads and kind of big long features and things like that longer news stuff didn't tend to do well among young people was because it didn't tend to cover the subjects that we were interested in um so that was the kind of premise behind it um 
you know, I'm from a working class background and I did notice that there was, you know, a lot of the kind of attitudes that I shared with people when I, when I kind of moved to London and um, a lot of the kind of things that I was interested in were very similar. Um, and, but there was a real perception that, you know, working class Northern kids or, you know, young people weren't interested in, you know, veganism, for example, or, you know, the climate or, you know, politics or whatever it was, you know, there's a real perception that, that those people weren't interested in that. And and I knew having grown up in, in the North and, you know, with all my friends and family, I knew that that definitely wasn't the case. Um, and it felt like there was nowhere, you know, if you wanted to publish that kind of stuff that, that there was nowhere that existed at the time or, you know, very few places that existed that really kind of understood that. So, yeah, so that's kind of how it came about. So you decided to do it yourself then? Yeah. Well, part of it was as well, I decided to move back up to Leeds um so that was partly family reasons because my grandma was ill at the time um but also you know I was getting to my late 20s wanting to buy a, a flat potentially couldn't do any of that in London um and I don't know yeah it felt like the right time to move really um so and and obviously anybody in journalism will know it's so much more difficult to get a journalism job outside of London um, so I, I, it was partly necessity and partly to fill that kind of gap in the market that I, th- I thought existed. Had you ever done anything like this before? No, no, I don't. I don't even understood. Like you know, people are always people always say to me like, "Oh, what? How did you have the guts to do something like that?" And I honestly, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I'd never. I we I'd kind of been part of things. You know, I I was. We did something called the Words by Women Awards. Me and a, a group of women. Um, that was a, a journalism awards um you know that we just kind of threw together and and it seemed to work quite well um so I, I kind of understood that there was was potential and sometimes when you just throw yourself into something it is it's possible to to do the thing that you want to do yeah okay so in terms of how you operated from that point onwards what did your business model actually look like so my kind of idea, I guess, for it was that I, I really didn't want to have programmatic ads. So at the time, everywhere, you know, every news site was just like absolutely loaded with them. And it still is to some extent. <laughs> yeah. To, to the point where they don't load properly, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's it. So I, I kind of wanted to put the the users first. And obviously it's not it's not that simple. You know, you've got to have some kind of revenue. You've got to have money from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um. And initially the plan was to do sponsored content. So just do some really good quality sponsored content um, because because we didn't really have big overheads. You know, initially it was just me it eventually developed a small team. You know, it, it, we weren't paying for expensive office space. We weren't paying for kind of any of any of the kind of things that um, that a lot of a lot of companies are paying for. And, then you know, which is why they need that kind of sizable revenue. Um, and I just thought maybe over time it it would grow. You know, if we could get a few good brands on board, it would grow a little bit. Um, and then I I always had a plan for a membership of some kind, um, and we did eventually do that. We did a we did Patreon, um, and we did Steady as well. And Steady Steady in particular was absolutely brilliant. Mm. So, by the sounds of things, you've always kind of worked out of bedrooms and this kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I yes, initially yes. Um, what, what we've worked from actually is, is loads of temporary spaces. So, you know, loads of people saying, oh, you can use this room for three months. Um, you know, right, yeah. yeah. And we had a, um, uh, we worked with an arts charity and we could, we paid a very, very low rent for, for temporary spaces, but it did mean that we got 
often less than a month's notice and we had to get all our stuff out and find somewhere else so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was a bit of a challenge but um yeah that in a in a way kind of saved us uh, you know or at least allowed us to exist um and all all be together in the same room a lot of the time cool okay so you you spoke there about your patreons and your members at your height roughly how many people did you really have signed up i think we we had more than 100 i'm not sure exactly how many um because they were spread over patreon and and steady yeah. um but the problem really was that um revenue wise we were always growing but but just never enough so you know we'd get maybe an extra supporter or two a month um, which was absolutely brilliant and you know I'm, I'm i'm so grateful for having those supporters but it the the kind of initial idea was to grow much more slowly <laughs> um and you know not have not have staff and you know it got to the point where after a couple of years so many people had come on board and they were so brilliant and they you know volunteered quite a lot of their time that i i was trying to pay as many people as possible um and um and i was and i was doing that but i realized eventually that they were never going to get a full-time job out out of this on you know not not for years and i was kind of like stringing them along a little bit (laughs) you know with giving them one day are you saying that in some ways you became oversaturated with writers then totally yeah that's exactly what happened so the plan had always been you know when I when we set up the plan the plan had always been or my plan initially had always been to have me and a co-founder you know someone to run the business and me to do the editorial side um and I felt quite confident in building the traffic and actually we I did that really really quite well um partly through you know knowing what would do well but partly through absolute coincidence and fluke you know we had hundred thousand uniques in the first month which is which is a lot you know for an independent in the first month um so yeah and and that part of that was just being very lucky and part of that was by design obviously <laughs> um so yeah so the the idea had always been to have someone to do the business side of it um i'd i'd gone on a kind of entrepreneurship program thing um and they were very keen on um just launching and they they'd always say you don't know what you need until you launch and I was like I've worked in I'd worked in a startup a media startup before I worked in different companies um I knew 100% what I needed and it was someone to do the business <laughs> side you know someone to do the sales someone to you know do the revenue and the marketing side of things and I would just focus on building the site you know building the traffic um but I, I, so that was kind of a big mistake really of mine was that I, I just completely took that advice on board, even against my be- better instincts. So I had never intended to um, run it completely alone. Um, but everyone said, why not? Why not? And then I don't know, I guess, I guess I just thought, oh, well, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe once we get going, you know, uh, well, you know, it'll like figure uh, itself out. Yeah, exactly. But I knew it wouldn't. And I don't know how I allowed that to happen. You know, at the time as well, the other message that I, that I was getting a lot of was, um, you you don't know what you need until you launch. Oh, no, wait, that was the first one. The second one was, um, you, um, you're the best person to sell your business. Um, and I, I also knew that wasn't true, because I'd worked in sales before, and I was terrible absolutely terrible like I, I can persuade people out you know people who are interested I can persuade them out <laughs> so it feels like you're describing me actually <laughs> yeah yeah exactly like I think that the skills of, of sales and journalism actually don't overlap at all and they're kind of almost the opposite in a lot of ways 
Um, so yeah, so I, I, I knew I would really struggle with that. But again, I thought maybe I've got this untapped potential that I never knew that I had. Maybe, maybe actually it's trying to sell my own thing. I, I, you know, I'll be actually quite good at it, but no, I wasn't, I was absolutely terrible. Um, so yeah, so by the time I'd kind of like registered that, that those were the reasons why our revenue was growing so slowly, we were in quite a difficult financial position. I already had paid writers on board and I did get pay, two paid salespeople that were part-time, but I just couldn't give them enough hours really to make a, a dent, you know, in, in the sponsored content side of things. Um, so yeah, I think ha- in hindsight, I was very keen to kind of hang on to every brilliant writer that came along the plan was to build the overtake so that they would have full-time jobs eventually um but actually I think probably I should have I should have you know stuck with just me or me and somebody else and you know that would have been the best way to do it I think Mm. and to be clear about this who were these other people that would come on to write for you yes okay so um initially what how it started was I was kind of this one person band um and somebody um at a local uni had emailed me and said can I come for work experience and I was like it, well it's just me so <laughs> um you, you can but I, I think I'd even gone back and gone actually no I, no it's, I'm just one person so I don't think it's I don't think it's going to be good for you and she was like no no I'm really keen and I was like okay fine you can come and I had some temporary office space um so in a shared office so she came she had work experience and she was brilliant and I was like oh you know, this is actually, this could be quite useful to have, you know, to have somebody, it's time consuming, obviously, to have work experience people. But actually, you know, she did some brilliant stuff. And she was, I think she only did a week or maybe she did two weeks. Um, and she was brilliant. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll accept work experience people. And then once the word got out about that, I was getting, you know, a couple of emails a week of people saying, can I come uh, and do work experience? So I started doing a um, one day a week internship, which I thought was probably the best way of doing it. Um, so it, it lasted like if you added all, all the days up, it was 15 days in total. So no more than three weeks if you if you would take it as a, you know, three weeks, which is what the BBC does or the BBC did. I don't know if they still do that. Um, and and, it, and I would take anyone as well. Like, you know, I wouldn't, especially at the start, I, I wasn't kind of filtering through applications. It's just they'd go on a waiting list and, and they could come one day a week. Um, and there were so many of them because in Leeds, we've got, you know, th- I think three or four of the universities have got journalism courses. At least three of the universities have got journalism courses. They all need to get work experience as part of, part of their course. So I was just kind of inundated. Um, so I took as many as possible. Um, and some of them were just exceptional. And, you know, they graduated or, you know, whatever, and they were like, oh, you know, I had Ben, one of the early ones was like, please, can I stay? And I was like, no, we've got a rule. Like, I don't I don't want it to look like I'm exploiting you. You know, we've got the 15 day rule and that's it. And he was like, please, this is like he, he'd worked in a, in a crappy job. And he was like, please, this is all I look forward to, like all week. And I was like, OK, fine, <laughs> you can say um, really tugging on your heartstrings then. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and then that happened a few times and kind of people, people stayed and then I could kind of pay them a little bit of money. Um, so I would, you know, probably, and, and bear in mind, I should say, you know, most of this, I wasn't paying myself at all. And actually a lot of the time I was paying reporters in my, in my team and I wasn't paying myself, which I think was actually probably a mistake as well. Um, 
because then I had to do a lot of freelance work to kind of make ends meet, I guess. To compensate. I mean, you've got to live yourself, Robin, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. And I th- I liken it to, you know, um, when, you, when you go on a plane and they say, you know, if there's in, in the event of an incident, like you've got to put the... Um, the oxygen mask on yourself first before you before you put on a child and I think it's a bit like that I think I was putting oxygen masks on my team um and then I was in financial dire straits and I was already overloaded with with everything that that came with the overtake um that really I shouldn't have been doing freelance work to try and survive I should have been paying myself first and then the team second do you wish you were firmer then oh 100% yeah yeah I think I don't know whether we'd still be here. I don't think it really changes that much kind of economically. Some of the decisions I made were based on that I like these people and they deserve to be paid for the work that they do. Right. Not I'm a business, you know, I'm running a business and I have to think about myself and the business first. And, I, you know, yeah. uh, if I did it again, I, I definitely I definitely do that. And to be clear about this, your freelance rate was £50 a feature, correct? Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was a flat rate. So it's fifty pounds, no matter what it was. Um, so like an easy piece of feature um, opinion. Although we didn't do a lot of by the end, especially we didn't do a lot of opinion because um, I was just getting pitched so much opinion, and a, you know, a lot of it was it, quite, I guess, uninformed or un, unqualified opinion, um, and a lot of it was about politics, and it just it wasn't it wasn't right for us. So we we kind of stopped doing doing an opinion. I mean, what you were saying before about um, not paying your writers what you perceive to be a fair amount, £50 an article, perhaps on a national level, isn't much. Um, but for young journalists or journalism students, you know, that is um, significant. It, it is a significant amount for them. And also in the context of how your business was, £50 was represented quite a lot for you, really, didn't it? Exactly. That's it. Yeah, exactly. So like... Well, if I'd have been making a profit, we would have got a lot of flack for that for that rate. But I think because we were really struggling as individuals, um, and I was really struggling financially personally, um, I think people were were a bit more relaxed about it. But I do think of it like you know, if it if it's a piece that takes half a day to write, let's say, and and it's, in a lot of cases it was longer, it would have taken them longer than half a day. But let's say if it's a piece that takes them half a day to write, that's that's just minimum wage. It's not it's not brilliant, but um it's you know in that position you know I worked in a cinema when I was a student and I would have done anything to have got paid minimum wage to write instead of to work in a cinema so you know I do, I feel like there was um you know it, it the rate wasn't brilliant and that was part of the reason why you know we got to the point where I was like you know we're gonna have to close because it's not getting any better anytime soon it's interesting that what you're saying is on a personal level, you were struggling, but on a business level, the overtake was doing okay. I think in the blog post that announced the closure, you wrote that it's very hard to end something which isn't failing. So how successful was the overtake? Um, well, we we never owed money to anyone. Um, I could always pay everybody. And I, I tried, I aimed to pay people kind of straight away because I, you know, I was a freelancer too. Um, at, at the at the kind of height we had, I had seven part time staff, but usually they were getting paid for maybe a day a week, and that was it. So I would say at the height, the turnover, like let's say a monthly turnover, was about three grand a month at the at the height. Um, but it kind of dwindled last year as I started to realise we were going to have to wind things down. That was it, really. So 
you know, most of that money went directly on paying the team. A part of it went on freelancers. Um, and then there were a few overheads, but genuinely it was like, you know, 50, 50 quid for, you know, G Suite or, you know, you know, the email, Google email thing. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, all your necessary everyday, everyday software that you need to run exactly, the business. Yeah. But what you're saying really is that the operating costs were super minimal. Most of the uh, revenue was really spent on salaries and commissions and this kind of thing. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, Robin, we've touched on it, but it's I'm cognizant of the fact that this is probably another big factor in all of this. You've got a day job at the Yorkshire Post. Yeah, I, I, I look back now and I honestly can't understand how I did that. Um, I mean, initially for quite a while, I've been doing like odd bits of freelance work. Then there was kind of a period where I was focused all, you know, completely full time on the overtake. Um, and then... I got, I, I don't know. I just, I just realized I couldn't live off, you know, 200 pounds a month. <laughs> <laughs> no one can Robin, not just you. No, no. Um, yeah, that's it. And I'd, I'd kind of added like a, a, a bit of savings from before, um, before, we, before I launched, um, and was getting by with like a bit of, of freelance work and yeah, probably pay myself about 200 pounds a month from the overtake. Um, and I was like, to, you know, to, to get, unless I'm going to get rid of some people, I'm going to have to get a, a part-time job. So the, that's when the Yorkshire Post came along. Um, weirdly at the time, just by absolute pure coincidence, the overtake was based on the floor below the Yorkshire Post. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I would go in a, at about 8am, do an hour and a half um, on the overtake and then go upstairs and do wow. a day. Yeah. And then I'd, and then I'd go back downstairs you do maybe another hour at the end of the day um and I remember mentioning it to somebody I I'd, I'd kind of by this point lost all perspective of what a no, what normal working hours were um, sounds like something out of a movie Robin you know that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like you're trying to be two people at one moment in time yeah that's exactly it and I, I remember saying to one of my colleagues at the Yorkshire Post um like what my you know that I was doing that and she was like that's crazy and I was like no it's not and then afterwards you know like now I look back and I'm like that that was crazy. I don't. I just don't know how I managed to do that. Did the assurance of having that job at the post have any impact on your decision to close the overtake? Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, yes, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, but to be honest, I was so tired. You know, around kind of like mid mid last year, I was thinking about you know what can we do with the overtake that makes it more manageable for me um and makes it so that it can grow and I looked I you know I spoke to loads of brilliant people in print who run print magazines um who are brilliant you know gave me loads of their time um you know positive news tribune uh now then all people who you know which you do get in in independent media you do get people who are willing to kind of help you and to give you um advice and support um and they kind of taught me through what how it works kind of print wise for them um, and that was a real, it was a real option, but again, it was just the same kind of thing. I, I was like, you know, the first issue, I'm going to have to get together some content and not really be able to pay people properly. And then it's just like, you know, where, where do you stop with it? Um, so I think I just, it just got to the point where I was like, you know, I'm, I'm living this kind of like 
cursed life <laughs> I'm trying to trying to make the struggling thing work trying to survive financially you know I'm this year I'll be 32 and it's like you you just get to a point in life where you're like oh I can't I can't this this isn't working I can't I can't do it and I think had I had somebody who I could hand it directly over to I would have done that um so it wasn't really, you know, I don't think it was, it would have been sellable. I don't think anyone would have bought it. And actually I, I, I might've felt a bit uncomfortable about selling it just because of all the people who have kind of supported us probably didn't do that with the view to me selling it. Um, but um, yeah, but there was nobody really in line to kind of take it over. Um, and it, and and also what, it, what I would be, you know, if someone came along and said, oh, I, I got quite fancy running this. I would have been giving them an enormous responsibility that, you know, of something that's very difficult. And like I say, it was growing, you know, traffic was growing, our supporters were growing. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't um, dying or, you know, it wasn't heading for a dead end or anything like that. So if I could summarize a couple of these reasons um, for the closure, there's one, just your own personal level of fatigue, doing multiple jobs and, and crazy hours. Two is perhaps guilt associated to uh, what you deem to be unfair rate of pay for talented writers that were uh, contributing to the website. And three, just the fact that there was nobody to pass that responsibility onto. Um, is that a fair summary? Yeah, exactly. That's Good. Um, Robin, I've dwelt quite a lot on the negative today, so I'd like to kind of switch up the tone and ask you a positive. The encouraging thing in the blog post that we've spoken about is this optimism around the future for independent media. And indeed, today you said that the um, overtake was going in a good directions, but for the other reasons we've outlined, that's why it had to close. What's your take on the future of independent media? Yeah, 100%. So I was asked this actually, like a conference maybe last year um, about independent media, or maybe the year before, it might have even been at this point. Yeah, it would have been the year before, of course, because we've just had a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that year. Um, some, yeah, someone asked me about that. And I, you know, my view was always that the independents that exist at the moment, if they can just get through the next few years, um, there's there's definitely, you know, the tide is turning. So when we first launched, it was very much like, you know, all the kind of independents that were su successful were kind of Facebook pages that did like sherry things you know like the kind of like um lad bible and the lad bible junior type content um and like all you know that was the kind of stuff that was successful at the time there was a lot of um you know oh local papers are really struggling you know and uh oh that's going to be bad for democracy um and we weren't a local publication but we we kind of shared similar struggles um, and nobody was really saying um, somebody needs to help them. Um, and I think that's what's happening now. So there have been quite a few grant um, kind of opportunities for, for publishers. And some of them have been, you know, like in the past, it would be always around tech. Any grants that came up were around tech. Um, and they were, a lot of them were given to legacy publishers that had that big team already ready to go and rarely would an independent get any, any kind of substantial grant or they were really niche. It was, it was some kind of global reporting or, you know, stuff that we just didn't do. Um, but it, but it exists differently now, you know, the, the, you know, you could, you know, a lot of publications, uh, last year 
got like 50 grand you know um to to from a from a public interest um fund um that just didn't exist before so i think we were very unlucky that we never got any of the grants that we'd applied for and part of it was because we weren't we you know a lot of the grants weren't really set up for people like us um but now they are so i i feel very positive you know if people are thinking oh i really want to start something um where I, you know where i live or you know um focus on this audience you know a, a specific audience that, that they think is out there then they're in a much better position definitely than we ever were yeah the one that obviously comes to mind is the future news fund run by exactly. nesta um yeah. if you went in for that and you were successful would would that have changed the complexion much Yes, it definitely would. Um, a, a lot of people said to us, once you get your first grant, then the, the, they come a bit easier after that. And I think we were doing so many investigations where, you know, we we had to constantly scale it back. You know, we couldn't afford to travel. Like there was one that we wanted to do where we were, we just needed to go to the Midlands and stay in, stay in a hotel or, you know, B&B or whatever in the Midlands for a couple of days. And we just didn't, there was just nothing in the budget for, for doing that. Um, so you know being so it just meant we couldn't complete that investigation um so i think being able to put some money aside to do one big investigation to kind of prove what we could do um and we did a lot of small things that that were successful and that that were kind of you know we got long listed for the paul foot award uh one year for kind of smaller investigation that we did um but we had so many great ideas and so many so many kind of fully formed investigations really that just needed doing <laughs> Um, and just kind of like proving and putting 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 kind of down um, that we couldn't do. So yeah, I think it would have been transformational. I don't know whether you know a lot of it came down in the end to me being completely knackered, and I don't know whether then you know having any more money would have really helped uh, in that in that way. Um, but it might have done because it might have meant that I could you know pay somebody to run the site and while I took a holiday or you know something. Um, yeah 50 grand so, might cover that yeah I think so. <laughs> um but like I say we were just I was really bad at filling out those applications and we were just very unlucky with with not getting any of them um so yeah sure so Robin what's next for you well at the moment I'm still part-time at the Yorkshire Post um I'm freelance um so I, I've actually been really enjoying being freelance um so I think really I've been kind of doing the overtake or doing something on the overtake for kind of four or maybe even five years, really. Um, so at this point, I'm just, you know, my profile in the industry's changed. You know, I'm a bit more well known, so it's a bit easier to get freelance work. Um, and I've been very fortunate, actually, with the with freelance work during the pandemic, um, because people are always looking for reporters, which is really good. Um, so I'm kind of enjoying that at the moment. Um, there's, I've got, <laughs> I've got a, a, an idea uh, that's a kind of much, much smaller scale um idea that i'm looking to launch in the next few weeks but it is very small scale it's 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 a newsletter um essentially um but i think again it's another kind of gap in the market that that doesn't exist at the moment like your own personal newsletter yeah yeah it's 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 i would say it's a cross between uh something like the overtake and a personal newsletter ah, so you might be jumping on this indie bandwagon then yes exactly with uh patreons and yeah Substacks and the rest of it that's exactly it yeah so interesting yeah so and, and that would never that'll never be a big income generator or anything but it'll be it's just an, an, a kind of nice thing to do and i you know it gives me a lot of the kind of good feeling from the overtake but without the negative <laughs> side so best of both worlds yeah 
yeah so it's it, i feel very positive yeah sounds like you've really reflected on the last five years of doing the overtake and that will really kind of be useful to you going forward into your next mm. endeavors let me try and extract some uh parting words of wisdom from you uh robin to a young journalist thinking of going down this entrepreneur road what would be you know the best bit of advice that you could give them reflecting on the last five years uh, at the overtake i think um if you feel like you're not well represented you're right um you know in the, in the media um i would say listen to your instincts if, if there's something you want to do do it um because you you regret the things that you don't do more than you regret the things that you do um but also you know there's a lot of there are a lot of independents out there at the moment now you know again a bit different to how it was when we first started um and they all need help they all need money or they need um manpower or woman power um and um you know your skills can be can be put to use um and you can you can build a career from starting in independent media definitely some nice words of encouragement there robin thank you very much for your time and insights today thanks for jumping on the podcast and wish you all the best with whatever you do next thanks for having me great to speak to robin there and lots to reflect upon not least of those is how hard it is to make it in independent media but on the other hand there are opportunities there to serve community audiences that said, it's a monumental task and one worth picking your battles with. If Robin's candor is anything to go by, by all means pursue your passions, but delegate responsibility where you can and where tasks fall outside of your expertise. Otherwise, it can spiral out of control. If you like what you heard today, you can find all our other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. And if you'd like to feature on an episode, I'd love to hear from you. Drop me an email on jacob at journalism.co.uk. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.